Hello and welcome to the A to Z of the future. My name is Alexander Thomas. This podcast is going to present 26 concepts which I think together may provide valuable insight into what the future of our world and life on this planet and maybe even beyond could have in store. This is episode two of our three-part discussion into the Anthropocene. In episode one, we learned what the Anthropocene means, where the term came from, and what it indicates from species extinction to pollution, fossil fuel emissions to the acidification of the oceans, and many more factors besides. We also heard about the arguments over when the Anthropocene era began. In episode two, we'll consider alternative stories which can be told about the Anthropocene. After all, there is no universalized human that is causing all these effects. Our impacts are unequal, and the implications of the Anthropocene on each of us is fundamentally different. We'll explore whether it is really humanity that is causing all these crises, or if it is specific human systems, such as capitalism, or patriarchy, or technological development, that is the real cause. Here's Jason W. Moore, Professor of Sociology and Environmental Historian, reminding us of the geological debate over when the epoch of the human began. There have been two great candidates for the golden spike of the Anthropocene. Most commonly are those who identify the period 1945 to 1964 with atomic testing and atomic bombing, with chicken bones and the proliferation of the meat industrial complex, and then the development of plastics. Lots and lots of plastics everywhere. Those are, for one group of, of geologists, the golden spikes for the Anthropocene. Another, uh, pioneered by the geographers Mark uh, Maslin and Simon Lewis, identify what they call the Orbis Spike, which is the low point in carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere reached in the year 1610. Now, what caused that? Well, it was not anthropogenic in the way that, that we might think. It was not all humans doing something. It was a particular group of humans, conquerors, slavers, merchants, bankers, pushing forth the invasion and genocides and slave raiding of the Americas that resulted in the deaths of 55 of 60 million human beings in the Americas attendant upon the rise of capitalism. But that induced a carbon drawdown because the forests grew back, the soils were undisturbed relatively by agriculture, and therefore absorbed more carbon, and you have a low point in carbon dioxide concentrations, which contributed to capitalism's first great climate crisis in the 17th century. So that's the geological Anthropocene, and that's a very serious, uh, very generative conversation. In fact, we need more climate and earth system research. Now, we also need to push those earth system scientists to take seriously that the climate crisis is not just about parts per million of greenhouse gases. It is also about the climate class divide about climate apartheid, about climate patriarchy. And those are not incidental. Those are fundamental to the planetary crisis, which combines greenhouse gas concentrations, tipping points in the Earth system, and in, in all these planetary threshold uh, tipping points that Rockstrom and many others have talked about. It also means that we need to understand relations of power and capital as central to all of those and vice versa. What Jason is suggesting here is that the geological questions alone don't tell us enough. Stories start to form in the rock, human stories about who we are, what we are, what we might do next. Such stories are inherently political.
And that's what we'll be focusing on today, the multiple interweaving tales of the Anthropocene. Here's Mark Maslin, who along with Simon Lewis developed his own story about when the Anthropocene began and what that might tell us about ourselves. We were proposing 1610. That also plays into really interesting narratives because it's the start of colonisation, it's the start of global capitalism, it's the start of mass slavery, and therefore it also talks to the impact on indigenous populations and therefore how we are changing both the planet and society at the same time. So it sort of seemed to square the circle to look at the positives and the great negatives of globalisation and humanity. For Erica Cudworth, these stories are vital to respond to a failing in the way Paul Crutzen's concept of the Anthropocene has increasingly been used in the media. Although I'm very sympathetic in some ways to Crutzen's project, the thing that troubles me is the ways in which these terms that become so promoted, some would say over-promoted, popularised, and in using it, you get this kind of uncritical perspective. So I think that's why those kind of multiple scenes, those multiple stories of how we got there, that are all entangled and interrelated, are really as necessary. Absolutely. There are lots of ways to actually look at the Anthropocene under different microscopes. And I think that's why it's a brilliant overarching concept because it then allows everybody else to interpret in their own way, through their own lens, through their own subject. So, for example, um, there are brilliant ones, uh, such as the Capilo scene, which says all the impacts of the modern day can be traced back to the roots of capitalism and its impact on the planet. Okay, You can then look at the techno scene, which says, well, actually... Wasn't so much that, it was really when we started to invent stuff in the Industrial Revolution, that's when it all went horribly wrong. We're going to discuss both the Capitalocene and the Technocene in more detail, alongside many other scenes. Other concepts that identify not humanity, but a particular aspect of human behaviour as the source of planetary breakdown. But before we do that, let's just consider some of the limitations of the Anthropocene concept. There been quite a few criticisms well-known one by Deepesh Chakrabarti, who says that the problem with the way the Anthropocene is conceptualised is that it focuses on a planet that's imperiled, rather than thinking about our problematic human life ways and the fact that perhaps it's humanity that's imperiled in the Anthropocene. So it really doesn't take account of the fact that we actually are all in this together and that we are a threat to the ongoingness I suppose of the planet and a threat to to many species like us. So the Anthropocene implies humanity as separate once more from the nature in which in reality we are irretrievably embedded. For Jason and Mark this binary dualism of humanity separate from nature is dangerously misleading. People often say well aren't what's wrong about making a distinction between humans and the rest of nature isn't that normal but the dualism says here's one area of existence that we'll call society and then here's another area of ecology that has the plants and the birds and the zebras and the soils that we can understand really independent of humans and 
If we want to understand the long buildup to today's planetary crisis, we have to cross those firewalls. This issue of separation, of humans separated from nature, is it's a real feeling. But it's embedded in our, in our minds that this is a man versus nature problem. No other civilization, not even feudal Europe, would have thought in those terms. And certainly if you go around the world, indigenous traditions in the Americas, most obviously, but not exclusively, would say that's an ultimately absurd way to think about the world. It's n this is not just a question of abstract philosophy. Uh, this is a question of Europe's practical conquest and domination of the globe in pursuit of endless capital accumulation. For me, one of the issues has always been this separation between nature and humans. As a global species, we are fully connected with the Earth system. And actually, we are impacting, both positively and negatively, all aspects of nature. So whether it happens to be the chemistry of the atmosphere, whether it happens to be the pollution of the oceans, whether we are replanting massive forests or deforestation, we have impacts on every single part of the Earth system. And that feeds back to us because we're fully involved in that. So for me, bringing the complexity of the planet and bringing humans within that fold, as a scientist, I've never really separated humans from the climate system at all, because we're fully integrated. But I think there is a real need to bring the general public into that viewpoint, which is we're fully tied in, and actually our decisions both affect us and other people, but also the natural systems and the climate system. Modernity, as it developed and took shape from 1492, the invasions of the New World, but many other audacious revolutions in ways of seeing and knowing and militarizing the world, commodifying the world, that fundamental to the rise of capitalism was a way of sorting out reality into humans and civilization, or Christianity at first in one box, and then everyone else, the zone of savagery, in the other box. And so when we use the term human, we lose track of the reality that historically, and even to this point in, in the development of capitalism today, the vast majority of human beings have been expelled from humanity and been regarded as less than human. And so from this standpoint, capitalism is not just a system of economics or politics, but a, a way of seeing and a civilizing project and not not in a good way. I'm not sure that civilizing projects are ever good, but in this case, a way of cheapening humankind, women, nature, and colonies, in the words of Maria Mies, in order to turn not just nature as the fields and the forests and the streams into profit-making opportunities, but to treat human beings as cheaply as possible, economically and culturally, in order to pursue profit-making opportunities at every turn. This starts to suggest the first of these scenes, and the one we're going to consider in the greatest depth, not least because we have one of the foremost thinkers of the capitalocene on the show, Jason W. Moore. But before we let Jason explain how capitalism constitutes the defining force of our planetary crisis, Here's Erica to sum up the notion of the Capitalocene. The Capitalocene, coined at a conference actually by Andreas Malm, 
um, used in, in a wide variety of literature. I think given the origins in Crutzen of the Anthropocene, placed at the door of industrialism, surely that's the Capitalocene is a befitting term. And if we look at the kind of course of the history of capitalism, it's imperatives to grow, expand, squeeze profit from cheap land, cheap labour, cheap resources to extract continuously, to commodify things, creatures, relationships. So this has been a kind of ruinous planetary force. Jason W. Moore agrees, and his expansive knowledge of geographic history makes him apt to consider the way capitalism functions to estrange us from our natural embeddedness in nature. So the first thing to say is that capitalism is a provocation. And it's a provocation not just to Anthropocene, age of humans, and the idea that climate change is anthropogenic. It is a provocation to big E environmentalism as it developed from 1968. And it developed on this basis. Whatever you do, do not name the system. The problem is for Paul Ehrlich, for Garrett Hardin, and for that matter, the big E environmentalist organizations that followed, the problem was one of man versus nature, and that ultimately, in order to understand the nexus of the problem, we have to go to human nature. And what mediates human nature? Well, in part, virtuous behavior. What happened uh, with virtue is that we're now supposed to regulate not only our, our fertility, which became easier, but also our consumption. And so it made the individual consumer the driver of global economic process and therefore global environmental change. And that's absolutely false. But the other part of it, of course, is an embrace of technology, technological fixes, and what, in a different context, the anthropologist James Ferguson calls the anti-politics machine. Essentially, environmentalism and man versus nature became a way of, of taking politics out and saying, well, we need to have the scientists and the experts and the bureaucrats come in and manage everything, which is, by the way, not a criticism of science, simply a criticism of a particular way of dealing with relations of power and nature. So the Capitalocene says what environmentalism beginning in 1968 refused to do. It says, let's name the system. And for us, the capitalist scene is not just about naming the economics of the system, but showing how precisely that these strategies and structures of domination are intimately connected to the conditions of profitability to a good business environment for capital. What's vital for Jason is the idea that we don't consider capitalism as just an economic system. It's also a way of seeing the world. It brings with it a set of comprehensive logics that infuses itself into everything, from the technologies it tends to produce to a reifying attitude to all our relations of being. Essentially, it makes us view everything as a potential commodity. Capitalism is about turning relationships and processes into things. It is about drawing lines around parts of nature, and we call those commodities, we call that property. When you draw a line around your property and uh, you buy a piece of property, it's not somebody else's property. You're drawing the lines around a piece of the web of life. And that is a very specific part of the history of capitalism. It says, how does one draw the lines around genetic sequences or technological inventions or uh, pieces of land in order to institute and reproduce a system of competitive accumulation? And that's 
so important to keep in mind because we often lose sight of the relations that make our world, that, that we live in a world that is about thingifying everything. And that's where this sense of alienation from nature comes from. It's a very palpable and real uh, sense. Human beings have been robbed of a lot of their connections to other forms of life. The obsession with reification, that is, the thingifying of everything, is coupled with an obsession with quantification, together making the web of life more amenable to instrumentalist processes of conquest and capital accumulation. Capitalism isn't just a mode of production, it's a mode of thought. And in fact, the two are really very intimately connected. And so today we talk about algorithmic capitalism, cognitive capitalism. In fact, the origins of that are with the origins of capitalism. They are with the revitalization of geometry and mathematization, leading to, amongst other things, double-entry bookkeeping and modern accounting, but also a cartographic revolution of mapping the world. And with my students, I often pose the question of why is it that we view the steam engine as the key machine of modernity and not the modern map? We don't have modern maps until, really until the, the 15th century. And then uh, we get famously the Mercator projection, which not coincidentally, Mercator means merchant. The Mercator projection, which overstates the size of European uh, states, for instance, but also was an eminently practical tool for navigating from one part of the world to another. If you can only say one thing about modern knowledge, it is about a commitment to turn everything into a number. So with technology and with systems of thought, we usually separate them from these dynamics of conquest and appropriation and frontier making. And in fact, they're always intimately connected. And of course, underpinning these logics and central to capitalism's tendency to exploit nature is the way in which nature is never fully accounted for in its calculations. Nature in all its forms, including human ones, is there for the taking at the cheapest price that can be leveraged. It's the pursuit of this cheap nature which Jason identifies as the source of the persistent expansion into new frontiers. From the beginning, capitalism was premised on cheapening in not just an economic sense. So this is not the $2 hamburger. This is to cheapen in an economic sense, but also to devalue. What we argue around something that I call the world ecology conversation is that the relationship of domination, so the world color line, globalizing patriarchy, and modern economic growth where money exists as capital only for the purpose of self-expansion, only to make more money, what, what binds these two together is a strategy that we call cheap nature. And cheap nature means cheapening both a cultural devaluation and an economic cheapening so that for the 1%, profit-making opportunities are expanded, expanded, expanded. So capitalism is based on not paying its bills. And capitalism has been extraordinarily dynamic in overcoming seemingly insuperable 
barriers to its further development. Now that means you always have to go to frontiers. That explains quite a bit about the long history of modernity. So when we look at the history of capitalism and its quest for cheapness, its quest for cheapness is a quest for those places that were hitherto beyond the reach of modern economic relations. So they were frontiers in that sense. It's always thrived when, when relatively small parts of the world Think of islands of commodity production and exchange and economic cash transactions have existed within oceans of potentially cheap nature. And so the, the example of the invasion of the New World is a great example of this, where almost overnight the work and life and energy potentially of two continents was put at the service of Florentine and Genoese merchants, later Dutch and British merchants. This was an audacious movement, not only of conquest, but of appropriating, of using the power of empire and the power of civilizing and Christianizing missions, always backed by force and always in pursuit of the almighty dollar or rix dollar or pound sterling or whatever it was, that these were not just moments of conquest, of appropriation to produce cheap natures and deliver them to the centers of industry and banking and trade. This accumulation by appropriation, that is the, the taking, the ongoing theft of the life and labor of women, nature, and colonies, is dependent on frontiers. Those frontiers in the way that they existed are now gone and everything about capitalism is hardwired through the possibility of finding new frontiers of cheap nature. Those frontiers have now not only closed, but if you think about what climate change really fundamentally represents, it's this, the enclosure of the atmospheric commons for the waste products of industrial capitalism and that enclosure has now reached its limit. The atmosphere is uh, no longer a source of cheap waste and cheap pollution because the bills are coming due. The effects of climate change are now feeding back on the possibilities of making a profit. There's a worldwide economic crisis, as we know, and it's immediately related to the erosion of possibilities to extend frontiers of cheap natures of every kind, including cheap human care, human work, and other uh, possibilities inscribed in human-centered relations, which of course are always relations with the rest of, of nature. We are seeing the end of the Holocene, this 11,700 year at least uh, era of relative and unusual climate stability. That's now over. It's undeniable that the world changed at the dawn of capitalism, but in Jason's eyes, it represents the beginning of a catastrophic trajectory. Capitalism began, and now we are seeing this carried to a new level as a system of intergenerational mass murder. And that's a heavy term to introduce in a podcast, but we really want to pause for a moment to reflect on how capitalism historically has already meant the end of the world as people have known it for a great many human beings on this planet. The New World genocides, which were genocides, let's not pretend that it was all just microbes and whoops, all the Indians died. 
The new generation of historical research has showed very clearly that yes, microbes would have had their impact, but not 95%, which was a result of labor camp strategies and slaving and other predatory colonial practices, all committed to earning a profit in a thoroughly modern kind of way. So the end of the world has already happened for a great many people on this planet. Capitalism begins as a system of intergenerational mass murder, and that's now amplified considerably in the era of climate change. And so this is why the golden spike that Mark Maslin and Simon Lewis identified as 1610 is for Jason the most important and valid as a conceptualization of the Anthropocene. The radical change of human activity involved relations of power around race, class and gender that simply cannot be captured by beginning the analysis with the Industrial Revolution. We need to look very seriously at the myth that says the origins of planetary crisis go to something we can call the Industrial Revolution in Britain right around 1800, maybe it's 1770, maybe it's 1830, and that this combination of coal and the steam engine changed the world. Now, it is true that the world was changed in some fundamental ways after uh, uh, this, uh, after 1830. There's no doubt about that. Whether or not that was the origin is a different question, and whether or not this was the birth of a modern economy is an entirely different question. What we know now is that virtually every important element of capitalism that any of us can identify developed between the years 1450 and 1750. And that's important for a lot of different reasons. Uh, one is that it brings uh, to the fore squarely questions of military revolution, military power, and other structures of domination, particularly modern sexism and racism, and how those were instrumental to a world of uh, workers, uh, including unpaid workers, by the way, and uh, of a few owners. That was in place long before the Industrial Revolution. But even with our story of the Industrial Revolution, if we limit it to the myth that I just shared with you, that it's, it's about Britain, steam, power, and coal, we forget that, well, arguably, the decisive technology of that era was the fusion of a new racism called the Second Slavery and the Cotton Gin. It was only cheap cotton made possible by racialized labor and the dispossession and genocide of indigenous peoples, who, by the way, developed the particular strain of cotton used in the Industrial Revolution. That was another form of, of ongoing theft of appropriation. Only through that fusion of race and machinery and genocide and dispossession, combined with other economic innovations of transatlantic transport, do we have the breakthrough to steam power in British industry in 1830. So I'm not saying that the Industrial Revolution in the way that we think about it was unimportant, far from it, but we always need to understand that it didn't develop in a vacuum and these questions of power and dispossession and the transformation of webs of life elsewhere were fundamental not just to the consequences of the Industrial Revolution but to its core causes. Central to Jason's thinking is the importance of seeing human lifeways in relation to all other aspects of life. This brings us back to that false version of Anthropocene thinking at the beginning, the separation of humanity and nature. The patriarchal concept of man versus nature, which has done so much to land us in our parlous state to begin with. 
Here, he reflects on his attempts to unify our thinking in forms of relational interconnection. Well, a few years ago, I published a book called Capitalism in the Web of Life. And a funny story, the first cover to the book came and they sent it to me and it said Capitalism and the Web of Life. And you might think, well, what's the difference there? And the difference is basically this, that everything indeed from childhood that teaches us to see the world is about, well, here's social, here's human, and here's the natural. And so from the very beginning, we separate out the two. When in fact, for most human beings, for most of our history, it has been the opposite. We are looking at how our lives are thinking our systems of meaning, the stories that we tell, the bonds that we make with friends, communities, families, all is embedded within a web of life. That's exactly why I called it capitalism in the web of life rather than using the phrase nature. People think they know what the word nature means and it means the birds and the bees and the fields and the forests and the mountains and all of that. But once you start to understand that everything that humans do, all of our relationships are embedded with, are connected with in the most intimate way, webs of life. We're learning this again in the era of COVID, of course. When you start to see that interconnection and that human beings are themselves environments for other forms of life, and of course, all of the human webs of relationships that we call society are about well, ecological, in the, in the widest sense of that term, ecological relationships. It's sometimes said, well, thought and ideas and culture is not ecological, but that's not at all true. All of our rituals, all of our sense of meaning comes from relationships with and within webs of life. And what I found as a thinker, as a storyteller, as a kind of social critic in all of this, was that when I started with society and nature and just added them together, there were a lot of connections that were left out. And there were crucial dimensions of life that I was unable to come to grips with. And that has a huge impact in how we're thinking about our politics in the moment of climate crisis. And, and so if we look at how we are taught to think about environmental problems. The Western academic discourse, and I think the policy discourse is very similar, is about degradation and destruction, more or less. It's also about the rationalization of resources. So in the Western tradition, uh, there are uh, a million different words for degradation. We are sort of like the old cliche about Eskimos and different kinds of snow, only with degradation. And so I wanted to ask in this book, Capitalism and the Web of Life, what if we understood that the web of life is itself alive? And that web of life, of course, includes what humans do. So was there a way to talk about the pulse of life making? And it turns out that there are a few languages around the world that have some sense of the pulse of life making, but in the Western tradition, absolutely not. So I began to propose we have a concept called the oikeos. So derived from oikos, home, household, economy, but the oikeos is a kind of placeholder to remind us that the web of life is alive and that 
it's not the story of capitalism in nature is not just about the taking up and destruction and exhaustion of this inert nature. The web of life is more than a place where we leave footprints. It is alive. It is making its footprints on us. And so the stories that I try to tell are stories not only about what industrialization or capitalism or colonialism does to nature, but also how webs of life at every turn are shaping the conditions for those relations of power and production and accumulation. And once we start to look in those terms, you have a much more intimate, much more porous sense of how human relations of power and production and reproduction are always irreducibly about humans and the rest of nature. What we've done in this world ecology conversation is we've dispensed with the usual academic procedure of asking, well, what's the definition of this or that? In its place, we've tried to ask connective questions that are maybe in some ways begin with those definitions, but then ask questions beyond. And so it's a connective and reconstructive journey of storytelling that draws in not just scholars, but activists and artists and storytellers of many different stripes. And we need that because in this moment of crisis and transition, not just the end of capitalism, but a turning point in human affairs, we need new ways of knowing and connecting with the world in ways that are as holistic as possible. I think that takes care of the capitalist scene, but what about those other scenes we mentioned? Here's Erica and Jason reflecting on their favourites and some of the other ones they take issue with. Donna Harrow has also been a strong advocate for the idea of the plantation scene, and this is also something that I think is important because the kind of history of the plantation is a key element in the history of industrial capitalism. So if we think of the plantation as part of a global network of imperial relations, we've got transportation of people, animals, plants, monocropping, land grabbing, species extinction, population displacement and eradication, forced labour systems, whether that's slave labour of humans and other animals or waged labour. And it's still very much with us, the plantation is seen, if we think of the production of things like palm oil and the so-called food of the future, soybeans. So it's important because it draws our attention to the planetary effects of these kind of extractive practices. It's not just about the nature of capitalism. And it kind of illuminates the ecological economic legacies of imperialism, race-based hierarchies and inequality, and, and also has, has a nod to patriarchal and gendered forms of hierarchy too, but perhaps not enough. So perhaps as a sociologist, I'm looking for the third bit of the classical triad, class, race, gender. And the idea of the gynocene has not really been developed as a distinct sort of scene, thesis or position. And I'm not sure whether or not it should. I think it's more important, perhaps, that a whole range of feminist contributions to these kinds of debates are recognised and taken seriously because there's a large body of important scholarship from ecological feminist, eco-feminist, indigenous and indigenous influence feminisms and ecologisms, 
which is linking anthropogenic violence as coextensive with patriarchal domination. It links ecocide and genocide. And I think that really needs to be taken account of. Well, you mentioned two of my favorites beyond the capitalist scene, Kate Raworth's The Manthropocene, which I love. That's more of a quip than anything, but that point fundamentally influenced my own thinking that the capitalist scene is a means not only of accumulating capital, but is fundamentally structured through systems of domination and appropriation of women's unpaid work. And as we know, when I talk about climate patriarchy, the climate crisis inflicts untold horrors and burdens upon women across the world. And we see a version of this with the COVID epidemic, with the woefully unequal burden of social reproduction placed on women caring for their children who maybe can't be in school or, or have other needs where the caretaking responsibilities are magnified. So when I say that the climate crisis is about the climate class divide, climate patriarchy, climate apartheid, I'm not just issuing a slogan. I'm saying that at the core of the drive towards the planetary inferno is globalizing patriarchy. And we can see that indeed, as Sylvia Federici and others have pointed out, in the 16th and 17th century, that the creation of this dualism of public and private sphere and man-woman and rational and irrational, those were fundamental levers, not only in terms of domination, but also in remaking planetary life in the interests of capital accumulation. Another of my favorite is Justin McBrien's The Necrocene, who fits it very much in conversation with the capitalocene. So when I said earlier that the capitalocene is an intergenerational system of mass murder, that is directly indebted to Justin McBrien's groundbreaking formulation of the necrocene. I think for some of these other terms, they uh, can be useful in particular historians' hands, but they can also be very dangerous and they can also be very obfuscating. So technocene erases the questions of class power from what we call technology. And really, if we think about the, the technology of the European West, it excelled in two ways, controlling very large spaces, so think about the uh, shipbuilding and cartographic revolutions in the age of empire, 16th, 17th century, but that continued and has continued all the way to the present. If you think about the GPS system that is run by the US Air Force. So that's not gone away. And then the other area in which European technology excelled was in killing very large numbers of people very efficiently with weapons of mass destruction. And this was true from the gunpowder revolution of the 16th century all the way to the American drive for nuclear supremacy in the 20th century. The term Catholicine, which is Haraway's term, is a way of thinking forward from this. And it kind of focuses on the ways in which we are entangled in interdependent multi-species assemblages. And when we're inhabiting the planet going forward, we're going to need to be working out how to survive on a damaged planet and how to come to terms with the kind of dreadful powers of the earth, which climate chaos is going to unleash. So I think this is also important and potentially it's the most interesting, uh, particularly um, in the light of this podcast series, because thinking beyond, thinking about future possibilities and ways in which in times of kind of destruction, in, t in quite precarious times, some of us humans might think about finding 
ways of promoting healing on our planet, of forming alliances with other species. So, in conclusion to what's important, in working out what's the current malaise, in tracking the trails of how we got here, I think there is virtue in hanging on to the idea of the Anthropocene, but it needs running alongside and through the lenses of other perspectives and capitalocene, plantationocene, are kind of really important when we're thinking about how intrahuman exploitation, inequality, violence is all bound up with human relations with other creatures and the planet. So they're all very important and they persuade me. Before we finish today, it is important to remember that all these ideas and theories sometimes take us away from the lived reality. One of our guests, Gaia Vince, travelled the world, learning from those who are on the sharp end of the effects of the Anthropocene. She tells us about the decision to investigate those stories and relays one of them to us to bring back a sense of the concrete experience of these impacts. That's something I think is really important as a writer, as well as somebody researching this, is to be able to show people that the Anthropocene is something that affects individuals, you and I, but it's it's very much a systems effect. It's much bigger than that. And so to be able to sort of zoom out and show this um, global effect and talk about that, but also to humanize it and bring down the individual players and what it what it means for you and I, but also people that we may never meet in various parts of the world and whose livelihoods and, and actual lives are, are much, much closer to their environment. So they feel the effects much more rapidly. The solutions that they come up with might not be the ones that are applicable to us, or they might be, you know, we don't know yet. I wanted to sort of show that global effect from those two different perspectives. Humans were were um, creating this problem, but also humans were experiencing the problem. And always when we experience a problem, we look for solutions. This was actually already having an effect on people, even if it wasn't the people that I was sitting next to necessarily. It was people in mainly the global south. And they were they were already experiencing this and they were already coming up with solutions. And this was only going to become more extreme and, and affect more people around the planet. And I wanted to see really what was happening on the ground, how people were dealing with this everywhere. So I bought a one-way ticket to Kathmandu. I started there and thought, hopefully I'll manage to keep this going for six months. And then two and a half years later, after touring Asia, Africa, Australia, Latin America, and various other places in the uh, rich world, I had so much material and insight into how this global effect was, was really affecting people. I went to Ladakh, which is a part of India in the very in the north in the Himalayas. It's kind of on the border. It's not it's India, but not really India. It's on the border of China and Pakistan. And but these are these are basically sort of Tibetan Buddhist people, the Ladakhis. And the people here are yak farmers, um, and also they farm um, barley. They live in a high altitude desert where it hardly ever rains, and they rely entirely on glacial meltwater for irrigation. And as we know, the glaciers, especially tropical ones, are melting extremely fast at the moment. And so most of the lower altitude glaciers had disappeared, which was a complete disaster because they don't just rely on it for irrigation, also for drinking, washing, everything. That's their entire water supply. And what it meant culturally was most of the young people had left to find work or 
some way, some sort of livelihood in the slums of Delhi and Mumbai. So completely very, very different cultural zone. So I met an engineer, retired engineer, who had found a solution to this problem, which involved sort of tapping the very highest glaciers and building these culverts and dams and creating this kind of artificial glacier in effect in the shadow of the mountains. So in the winter months, when the sun didn't get high enough to come over the mountains, this place was completely in shadow all the time. The glacial melt that he managed to stream down was slowed down enough that it would freeze there and you'd get an artificial glacier. And then as the year moved on towards April, March, April, the sun got high enough to start melting it. And the meltwater from this artificial glacier was then used to irrigate crops further down. And it was so successful that because of global warming as well, they managed to not only create these great barley harvests, but move into other crops as well. So they would have several crops during the year, including things like tomatoes and fruit trees and all sorts of other things. And this water was so precious that villagers were on rotation guarding the uh, sluice gates to make sure that it was fairly distributed and no one stole the water. So it just uh, that just to give you an impression of how valuable water is in this in this sort of place. And it was it was such a successful project that young people were coming back to start their lives again in, in Leh and in Ladakh, which is which is great. You know, I mean, these these sorts of adaptations are not long term solutions, but what they do do is buy enough time for people to adapt to the very enormous changes that they're facing. It's a very sudden and dramatic and life changing thing. It's, it's, it's catastrophic, not just for individual families, but for the society as a whole. You know, places like that risk losing their language, for example, if there's not enough speakers left, the villages become deserted. It's a way of giving them time to adapt and giving governments time to respond. I think something that I found as I travelled around is it really brought home to me how these adaptation solutions, it's only through cooperating with each other that we're able to, to make these big societal changes that allow people to stay where they are or allow people to adapt to very different circumstances. That's something that I saw I saw everywhere. And finally, what better way to end than with a love poem? The brilliant Sarah Clancy talks us through her attempts to satirise climate change and then reads the outcome of her endeavours, the wonderful poem Prepper Annie and the Anthropocene. Hi, I'm Sarah Clancy and I'm going to read you a poem uh, that came about in a roundabout way as a result of a commission that I had to write a poem about climate change. I had the commission and it was to write a satire about climate change, but as you probably know, at the point we're in in time, satire about climate change is a little bit difficult. Almost all of the worst things you can imagine are already happening somewhere, so although they mightn't be happening here, they're already someone's lived experience. And so I was finding it very difficult and I was struggling along without inspiration. But it did bring me down some plenty of rabbit holes on the internet and otherwise. So I was, you know, investigating uh, people wanting to move to Mars and preppers in the United States and so on. But one of the things that happened uh, around about the same time that I was writing the poem um, 
was I, I started reflecting on how comfortable I was actually and w one of the reasons I was so comfortable probably the most comfortable I had been at any stage in my life um, was that uh, a couple of years previously to that after many many disastrous relationships and rough times economically and financially I had met uh, a lovely person and my partner and we'd moved in together and you know one of the things that that I was doing was realizing that while actually a lot of things were kind of, you know, re uh, in real threat around us that I was in a, a better sense of well-being than I had been. And so the result of all those strange, strange combination of thoughts ended up with me writing probably the oddest love poem that's ever been written. So I'm going to read that for you now. It's called Prepper Annie and the Anthropocene. Anne thinks my habit of having several daily showers might have to be the first casualty of the coming era. And worse, she suggested that we might have to make our own deodorant or get used to body odour and pass no remarks on it. It's only natural, Anne says. I was wondering how we'd get our hands on coffee and if we should stockpile it already. But Anne thinks if we had it, some other addict might come craven across the lowlands intending to do us harm. And all things being equal, neither of us has much skill in hand-to-hand -hand combat, so it might have to be cold turkey on the coffee, Anne says. Anne thinks we'd be as well off, as far away from others as is possible. People really can't be trusted when the pressure's on. And Anne said, when I asked her, that the chances of us buying discount fruit in Freshco's or getting home deliveries will be slim to none at best. But she'd googled horticulture, how to do it, and windmills for beginners, and neither enterprise is anything she can't handle, Anne says. Anne thinks my experience with farming and livestock husbandry will stand us in good stead and her dad was a butcher so between us we could probably make a living thing dead. Although I don't have the heart to tell her that while I spent a lot of time with animals that was because I was otherwise more or less friendless and I've never really skinned one for its hide or made my shoes myself. Anne thinks our ability to predict the weather could be somewhat better and when she quizzed me, I had to admit that I haven't got a notion of how electricity is generated or how to work an aqueduct. And I don't know Morse code or radio frequencies or the principles of combustion engines. And if the truth be told, I'm even pretty vague on how fires are lit without matches. And all the time she's getting sorted here, I'm feeling less and less able for the Anthropocene and what it might mean. But I have to tell you that I saw her yesterday collecting bits of sheep's wool from fence posts and making little ropes with it. And this morning, from our bedroom window, she's lassoed seven seagulls and is outside this minute training them to fish for us. So I'd have to say, together, we are ready for the Anthropocene, unless Annie ever realises how useless I am and leaves me here to fend for myself. So that's it for episode two. Next week, in the final episode of this Anthropocene mini-series, we will consider the extent to which the Anthropocene is a future-facing term. What does it tell us about our future? And what should we do about the fact that we're living in the Anthropocene era? I'd like to thank my guests from today, Jason W. Moore, Mark Maslin, Erica Cudworth, and Gaia Vince. And of course, a special thanks to the wonderful poet, Sarah Clancy, for her poem, Prepper Annie and the Anthropocene. Thanks also to Matt Black and Darren Sangita for the music in the podcast. Check out their digital album, New Directions in Psychedelic Abstraction. Much gratitude also goes to Paddy Jervis and Rob Sell from Torch and Compass for their tireless work on the podcast, Matt Tams for his exquisite A to Z artwork, and Paul McCrudden, the other half of Into the Future. Until next time for the final part of this Anthropocene miniseries, bye for now.